open up your Bibles with me, if I can get mine to open up, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to be, where we find ourselves this week. And an interesting anomaly of the universe happened this week as I uh, opened up my Bible to begin preparing for this message, when I realized that um, the message that we're going to look at here today is probably not the text that most pastors would go looking to choose for Mother's Day. Um, there's, a, there's an old poem written by a, seven, in the 1700s by this guy named Robert Burns um, that is more widely known because of the title of a, a book from, of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck that the, the, the quote, the, the poem says, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And this, my best played, laid plan of lining out First Peter over the weeks that we have, it went awry when it comes to this. Because you're going to see the verse that we're going to read here today starts off by saying, wives be subject to your husbands. What a title for Mother's Day. Now the craziest part is this. If you were with us here last year on Mother's Day, there's only one other place in the Bible that has this verse. And we were in that verse last year at this time in Colossians chapter 3 about this thing. But it's the second year in a row. It's not a plan, but um, that's just the way it is. And it's still relevant to where we're at. And as you're going to see, it's, uh, it, it's going to fit a little better than you think it might here today. So we're going to start off by reading 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, we're going to read the first two verses. All right? So hopefully you found that. And here we go, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, if you were here with us last week, you will remember that we just came off an important passage where Peter tells us to honor the established order of things in the world. And he says that we do that for the Lord's sake. That's why we do it. And he talked about things like the governors that were underneath the authority of. And even he went all the way up to the emperor. And we talked about how it wasn't because it was a good emperor. It was actually one of the most wicked emperors in Roman history, Emperor Nero. But he still says we're to subject ourselves, subject ourselves to that, that authority structure for the Lord's sake. Even if they're unjust leaders, we, we su subject ourselves to them so that the grace of God, he told us last week, could be revealed to them. If you remember that from last week, we were called to goodness and graciousness. And that's what we were looking at. And he told us that Jesus suffered for us and left us his example in doing that so that we might follow in his footsteps. And that's why this section here starts off with that word likewise. The likewise, in the same way. So, so it's tied into the, that whole context of what we learned last week. That whole principle of we're choosing to um, fit into the, the structures that are in place around us so that we can be like Jesus sacrifice sometimes our own choices and everything else so that we can extend the grace of God to other people. 
And not only are we to have that mindset in the way that we engage with the world around us, but the lifestyle of good and gracious conduct is supposed to be carried into our homes. So last week, it's like, yeah, all the big, you know, the government and the, 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 out, the outward way out there, big stuff, we're supposed to live this way. But now he says, but you also need to live this way inside the home with those closest relationships. Now, just a, a couple statements here on the, the next phrase um, so that we don't skip past it in any way about this whole um, being subject to your own husbands, wives. The, the, as you know, the biblical models of male and female relationships and family structure often get a great deal of attack, both inside and outside the church. And how it is seen in scripture is, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, the, the church is a sexist institution, or it's, it's so old and ancient that it doesn't understand modern thinking. Well, most of the time, that bad rap that the Bible gets and Christianity gets is, is really because of an ignorance of the context of the Bible. Um, but it also, a lot of times, comes from just a simple misreading of the, the words on the page. Some Christians themselves are guilty of claiming that their traditions or biases are ordained by God when in fact they, mis they misrepresent or just flat out contradict what scripture says. But as Bible-centered people, which we aim to be around here, people that believe that the scripture is authoritative and inspired by God, it's important that we don't try to sculpt the Bible to fit our worldview, but that we try to sculpt our worldview to fit the Bible, okay? And this is one of those verses that's sometimes targeted as a sexist statement. Wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands. You know, is that saying that the, the Bible is saying that men are superior to women and that wives are supposed to be slaves to their husbands? No, that's not what this what Peter is saying here, and that's not the message of the Bible. That's not what we find in the Christian faith. In fact, we find the opposite in, in the Bible, in the Christian faith. There's an equality among men and women that's found when we're in Christ. Paul writes it this way in Galatians 3, 27 and 28. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are one in Christ Jesus. And a lot of those things that he refers to are, are cultural structures that are put in place. The Jews and the Gentiles. The slaves and the, the free people. And the male and the female. Those are all, we're all one in Christ Jesus. But what we also see is that there is a disparity or a difference between roles of men and women described in the Bible. Equal people, but with different roles. In New Testament times, society was unquestionably male-dominated, and, and there was discrimination against women. In the Roman Empire, specifically, where the recipients of this letter lived, women, uh, specifically married women, could carry a great deal of power and wealth and influence, but they were still considered to be a lower class than men in the Roman Empire. Uh, they couldn't vote, they couldn't hold political office, 
And certain laws were different for them than it would have been for men. It was not a fair setup. That's the way, the way it was. Now, what, what, what Peter, though, is talking about here, it doesn't push into any of that. Specifically, he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands in this relationship, this, uh, this structure that is, is set up this way. And in that culture at the time, a wife being under the authority of her husband, that was a given. So this wouldn't have been something when they heard, they were like, whoa, he's, he's gone into this whole other new idea. No, uh, throughout the culture, those roles were accepted. Now, you might be interested in that, and you might think, oh, well, let's go deeper into the Bible and let's study that. I've done that before, um, and if you are interested in that and you want to study that more, um, in your notes here today, you'll, you'll see um, there's two messages listed there that we've done in the past. One of them, uh, the one that I would in- encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast on if you're interested in it, is from Ephesians 5, 23 The title of that message was Relating at Home, Husbands and Wives. And we go deep into all the different passages where the Bible talks about this structure, this husband and wife mutual submission that's happening in that. Um, or last, last year's Mother's Day, <laughs> Colossians chapter 3, 18 to 21, Christians at home. But that's not the focus of this text. In fact, that statement that he makes right there, wives be subject to your husbands, and, and he goes on, it's a, a passing statement. The focus of the text is on the impact that a wife can have on the spiritual life of her husband. That's what's being described here. And Peter is presenting the possibility of having a winning marriage. Okay? Read it again. He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, so non-believers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, when I say he lines up a possibility of a winning marriage. I, I don't mean that in the sense of it's like a prize-winning marriage. You know, it's, it's not the model marriage, uh, something to brag about or be compared to. That's not what he's saying here. Um, not the sort of marriage where you, you know, go on and you write your best-selling book and you do seminars explaining your secrets to success. But what he says here is marriage is an opportunity and it can have the ability to be soul winning. That a husband, an unbelieving husband could be won over to the Lord, to the faith through the relationship and the influence and and the conduct of a wife. Now, we know that people come to the Lord in hundreds of different ways. I mean, honestly, honestly, if we had time to sit here and talk about each of our own stories and coming to the Lord and meeting God and our first spiritual experience with God, our first understanding of God's love for us. If even in a, a place this size with this many people, we'd have a hundred different ways probably that, that we came to the Lord. Now these women, specifically that Peter addresses here, they probably did not come to the faith through the influence of their husbands. Now, why, why do I know that? Because in that culture, because it was such a patriarchal society, if the husband, if the, the man of the house, if he came to the Lord, it was just expected that everybody else in, under his household, his wife, his kids, his servants, um, his associates, they would all follow along. 
it was the kind of setup where um, even, it's interesting, even some of the, the Roman historians, when they were writing different things like that, that uh, it was, it, they give descriptions of those very things happening, where uh, someone would be converted, and all of a sudden, everybody in the household. We see it in the, the book of um, Acts, when in Philippi, uh, the, the, the jailer, if you remember in Philippi, when he came to the Lord, it says there that that night, he and his whole household all came to the Lord. It's because that's how that, that worked, all right? But, but Peter wants to give these women an, an idea that even if they didn't come to the Lord through their husbands, that there is a possibility that their influence could directly impact their husbands. And in churches, people sometimes view a, a, a non-believing spouse as a liability, rather than an opportunity. And this is what Peter's specifically talking about. He's saying, no, don't, don't view it that way. It's, this isn't a, a, a place of embarrassment because you're, you know, your, your spouse doesn't know the Lord and love the Lord. No, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity that you might be able to win them over uh, to the Lord. Now, if, if you're not married here today, or you're not a wife, um, the concept is still very important. So I don't want you to check out on this, be like, oh, well, this old passage is for wives, so I don't fit that description. I don't need to deal with it. No, because the principle that we see in here carries into other close relationships as well. It, you can flip-flop it. Wives being um, won over by the conduct of their husbands. Children being won over by the conduct of their parents or even parents being won over by the conduct of their children. I was just talking to a friend this week, and um, he, he told me that his parents credit he and his brother for ever coming to the Lord and coming to church. When they were little kids, they had another friend that went to church. They started going to church with them and had fun and said, Mom, Dad, we want you to come too. And they started attending church because their kids were going to church and ended up coming to the Lord. That happens. But when we show the goodness and grace of God to others, it can draw people to its source. That's an important thing for us to know. When we show the goodness and grace of God to others, it can draw people in to the source of that goodness and grace, God. And that's illustrated here with a wife and her non-believing husband. That's what Peter's saying. He says, even if he doesn't believe, you can win him over because of who you are. And we know uh, Romans chapter two, it teaches us that it's not the wrath of God that brings us to repentance. What that passage in Romans two actually tells us is, no, it's, it's actually his kindness that draws us to him. How does a heart change? How does a heart be, become won over to Christ? Now, we could say, well, it's a fear of the wrath of God. It's knowing that hell's coming, and I don't want to go there, and I know that God's going to be angry at me. The problem is those kinds of conversions don't usually stick very long. We get afraid for a minute, and we pray a prayer, and, ah, give me fire insurance. I can't handle that. But in fact, what, what tends to have a deeper change is when we understand the grace of God and the goodness of God. And we're, we're drawn towards that 
wrath might move us from one place to another, but grace melts us. Think about that. Wrath might move you from one place to another, but grace transforms you. It, it, it melts you. It changes you from, you know, from going from ice, a solid, being melted down to water, a liquid. There's a trans, transi- transition that takes place there. And, and we're familiar with that, the phrase as church people, especially part of a church that evangelizes and shares their faith. We're, we're familiar with the phrase that says, well, we're called to be witnesses for God. And usually we, we view that as something that we do outwardly for other people. People out in the community or uh, in our neighborhoods or at school or at work. We, we share our faith. We're witnesses. Uh, we might post a Bible verse on social media or share with a coworker or a classmate something about our faith. And that's good. And that's important. And that's what we talked about last week, actually. That was the focus of that passage. How we Um, how we engage with the world as exiles and sojourners. But what about the relationships that are so close and consistent that we can actually communicate the goodness and grace of God without words? Because did you notice that's what he says here? He says, this is how you're going to do this. This is how this wife is going to lead her non-believing husband to the Lord. It's not by her great arguments about how good God is, it's, it's not that. It's without words, he says. It's actually through this conduct, through the things that God has done in us overflowing to other people. That's what Peter is illuminating here. He's describing this deep work done within us that overflows to those around us. And, and specifically, um, there in verse 5, it says it's this respectful and pure conduct. Now, that sort of conduct isn't learned from, you know, the top 10 ways to have a fabulous marriage. It's not that. That's not where it comes from. The sort of conduct that he's talking about is this deep transformation that happens in the soul of a person who's following after the Lord that then begins to bubble up and and flow out. Winning a soul without words takes a great deal of patience. This is one of the things that I don't think that Peter um, describes clearly there to us, but I think it's important to remember that. Because if we're going to win somebody over without words, it's usually going to take a little bit longer than, you know, communicating something with words, right? Have you ever, you know, played charades, (laughs) right? You're trying to get this most simple little thing um, conveyed, but without words, and sometimes you can jump around and do all these kinds of things and all these, you know, motions and actions and activities are trying to cue something in somebody's mind for them to understand, oh, this is what they're talking about. It, it sometimes can take time, right? And if we're going to be transformed by this conduct without words, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take time. That's important for us to know that. And it's only possible in close relationships. It's quiet and it is slow, 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 slow. Let's go on and read verses three to six. And then he says to wives, he says, don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God 
used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now again, how do we understand Scripture when we look at Scripture? This doesn't say that women can't braid their hair or wear jewelry or nice clothes. That's not what's being said here. His point is, don't be all focused on the external stuff. That's not what we're talking about here. This isn't how you're going to win him over. That's, that's not what we're discussing. There's not a problem with that, but that's not what's being talked about. The point is, the true imperishable beauty is found within. It's hidden in the heart. The gentle and quiet spirit, are, they're Christ-like traits that have the ability to reveal the grace of God and, again, draw others to him. And he says here, that's a precious work of God. This is an incredible thing that can take place. And he says, its beauty doesn't fade. Its beauty does not fade. Now, if you live enough life, you realize that beauty fades. Okay, recently, it was time for me to go and get my uh, driver's license renewed. And, uh, you know, I went and spent the day at the DMV in the different lines, waiting for them to call my number and all this, going back and forth, because I had to get the real ID, which is like the, the thing that you're, you're supposed to get, I guess. And um, so I, I went through the whole process, go through there, get my driver's license, paperwork all filled out, all that, take the picture, get it all signed off. And they're like, okay, in a couple weeks, you'll get your new driver's license. Great, I'm done, I'm out of here. Leave, wait a couple weeks, get in the mail, my new driver's license. Open it up, and you've, you've heard probably before, I know I have, kind of the, 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 the saying that goes, oh, you know, a bad picture on a driver's license. People say that. Oh, yeah, it's, well, guess what? It's real. <laughs> probably the worst picture that's ever been taken to me in my life is now carried around with me everywhere I go in my wallet. <laughs> and no, you can't see it. <laughs> so I, I get this terrible picture, right? Have you ever, have you played around with a, um, some of those apps that are on your phones where it's like, you know, um, face app is one of them. You can make yourself 25 years older. You can put on the, the sunglasses or the beard or whatever, long hair, short hair, all that. It's like they took face app and they put my picture through it and added like 25 years, stretched my head a little, everything. Like, it's awful. Now, my point is this. What I said to Aaron when I got it, I'm like, check this out. Like, this is what you got to look forward to in 30 years. <laughs> Hopefully, it don't really look like it looks like now, but I'm gonna. Like, my point is this. It's that beauty, we know that that kind of beauty, external beauty, it's gonna fade. No matter what the cosmetic companies tell you, right? The age-defying this or that or reverse aging and all this. No, it's going to fade. It's just what happens. We're human beings on earth. But what he says here is there's a magnetic beauty, a, a, a beauty that draws people in, that's visible in a person who's filled with the Spirit of God. And you know this because even those that you know that, that you've, you've met that are walking with the Lord and are full of the Lord, overflowing with the Lord. You see that and you're like, man, what is it in their life that is so awesome? Why do I want to be around this person and hear what this person has to say 
And, and what is it? How do they have that kind of relationship with God? This is incredible. Their life seems to be so much better than my life. And a lot of times their circumstances are worse than mine. But they still have this deep beauty that is there. It's God. It's God working in them. And that's what he's talking about. Now, I want you also to notice what it says here in this passage of who these holy women that he's describing hoped in. Were they hoping in their hero husbands? (laughs) No. They chose to submit themselves to a role of a wife, but place their hope in God. Their hope was in God. And that's very much like what we saw even last week as we looked at Jesus and saw that Jesus submitted himself to the role of the son. Jesus is the son of God, meaning he has submitted himself to the father. And that's a tricky concept, the whole thing of the Trinity, of the father and the son and the spirit, and that mutual submission that's taking place. This is what is happening here. Just like Jesus submitted himself to this role, but still trusted in the father, he's calling wives to say, hey, submit yourself to the role but trust in God, not in the husband. And then he brings up Sarah and Abraham. Now, Sarah and Abraham are both characters from the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. If you go back there and you read through this, it's, and the story of Abraham and Sarah and all that they went through, it's kind of interesting to me that Peter would pick them. And when you look at it, though, there's some things that you can pull out of it. And you might say, oh, Sarah, she probably submitted herself to Abraham because I remember as a little kid learning the song Father Abraham and Father Abraham had many sons and he went through this whole thing. And so Father Abraham was a really important spiritual man and and he was the the father of the many nations and God told him, hey, I'm gonna number your descendants like the stars and wow, Abraham must have been amazing. So it makes sense that Sarah obviously just submitted herself to this incredible godly man, Abraham. Well, when you read through Genesis, you realize, (laughs) Actually, that's not really the way it was all the way through Genesis. And that's now how Abraham was. In fact, Sarah endured some really stupid things with Abraham. Now, um, on top of that, one of the things that she had to deal with is if you go through Genesis and you read, you realize that Sarah and Abraham moved around a lot. All right, And that can cause tension in a marriage relationship, all this const- constant moving. But that's not even it. On two different occasions in Genesis, we find out that Abraham, as they were moving into these different regions, told Sarah, hey, I need you to lie for me. What I need you to do is when we go to this next area, I need you to tell everybody that you're not my wife. I need you to tell them that you're my sister. Why? Because he was afraid that powerful men were gonna murder him to take his wife because she was so beautiful. Two separate occasions, she tells him that, or he tells her that. I mean, she's got to be thinking, you are an idiot. (laughs) Seriously, this is what you want me to do? All right, I'm going to do it. Not only that, we also see Abraham taking their only son up on a mountainside one day to sacrifice him. (laughs) Try that one out for size, (laughs) moms, on Mother's Day. It's like, yeah, over my dead body, you're taking my son. I don't know. It depends on the, the age of your son. There might be some of you like, yeah, sacrifice that one. <laughs> right? But, but she went through a lot with, this, with Abraham. 
So what is Peter pulling out of here of, of saying this is a, a, a woman to look to as, a, as a, 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 an illustration of faith? Because Abraham sure, certainly wasn't up for husband of the year. That's not what it was. The point and why Sarah is listed when you go into the New Testament into Hebrews chapter 11, she's one of the women listed in the hall of faith. This is a woman of faith. The reason was that her faith was in God and she trusted him no matter what came her way. And it tells us there in the end um, of that that we just read is that Sarah lived fearlessly because of her deep trust in the Lord. It was her faith in, in the Lord. And the way she lived her life flowed out of that. Guys, when our faith and trust is in the Lord, we have a level of protection that we don't even understand. Psalm 91, four to five says, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. When we can put our trust in him, we can live fearlessly. Now, I don't want to minimize the, the difficulty of this whole description because it isn't as easy as just for me to say, just trust in him and your husband will become a saint. That's not what Peter's saying here, okay? And I know that there are many women, especially that are in some extremely difficult places in their marriages. And to simply say, oh, if you just trust in God, he'll, he'll immediately be won over. And by the end of the week, he'll be sitting in the chair next to you at church, raising his hands and praising the Lord. That's not what we're finding. But what I do want to say is know that God sees you. God sees you and where you're at. This is what, what we saw here in this passage. God sees you. Pray for your unbelieving spouse. And as we talked about, winning somebody over without words takes time. And I know that many people would say, you don't understand, I have been praying. And I'll continue to pray. Well, continue to pray because that's what we're called to. But put your faith wholly in God, even in those scary places, and then you have to wait for his salvation. We have to wait for him. Now, as I said before, these principles aren't just for wives with unbelieving husbands. Many of us have people in our closest circles that don't know the Lord. And our desire is that their hearts would be won over to God. Right? You, it may be family members. It could be siblings. It could be parents. It could be children. There's, there's people in those close circles that we just would desire that they'd be won over to God. And, and I'm saying the same thing to you as well. Put your tr faith and trust. Pray. Uh, but wait. You've got to wait. And I know that waiting is hard for us. But as Christians, one of the things that we have to constantly do is we, we have to make sure that we don't write people off. We don't write people off. That is something that happens in the world and it happens a lot and it's understandable. People will have relational conflict and they work on it, work on it, work on it. And it doesn't seem to fix, doesn't seem to fix and they're just like, forget it. I'm done with this person. Write them off, finished. And it's a temptation for all of us. Gosh, guys, even as a pastor, <laughs> it's, it's easy to do when you're trying to help people grow spiritually. You're like, are they ever gonna get this? Are they ever going to hear this? I keep saying the same thing over and over. This one's easy and they won't take it. The, the Bible describes pastors as shepherds. 
It's the same way with shepherds, right? They've got sheep in their flock. They're like, that one right there? Oh my gosh, it does the same thing over and over. This one will just not learn. That one is so stubborn. It's just, it's the way it is. But God's the God of patience and long-suffering, and he calls us to do the same. And we know that a spiritual work, talking about winning a soul over, that spiritual work requires spiritual power, and God is the source of that. We've got to wait on him. Then as we finish here in our passage of 1 Peter today, in, in verse 7, it says, Likewise, husbands, here's a word for the husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. In the same way, likewise, husbands show honor to your wives. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, don't use your role, the role that you're in, as a position of dominance, but instead as an opportunity to bless and honor those underneath the authority that you have only because of the role that you're in. And, and just the way that you would want to be blessed by those with authority over you. And we see that where he says, showing honor to the woman, and yes, again, an offensive phrase here, as the weaker vessel. Um, and undoubtedly, that's, that's most likely referring to being physically weaker. I think if we had an after-church uh, arm wrestling contest, um, between husbands and wives, in most cases, the husbands would out-arm wrestle the, the wife. Not always. There are exceptions to the rule. Um, but certainly not referring to spiritually weaker or intellectually inferior in any way. And perhaps even a reference to the social structures of the day. There was a glass ceiling for women in that society. Absolute. And, and he's referring to that. But what he says, he follows it up. He says, but they're equal heirs. They are heirs with you of the grace of life. The life that you get from God is the life they get from God. And it's reinforcing that equality found in the kingdom of heaven, which was countercultural to the world. I mean, even now, 2,000 years later, in a modern society, we still deal with the disparity between men and women in the world. And what does he say about it specifically? He says, make sure you're doing that. Otherwise, you're, it's an interesting phrase here, your, your prayers could be hindered. Hindered prayers. Well, here's what we know about that. Oh, my, my iPad is so hot that it doesn't want to be used um, because of the sun. Well, I'll try to finish it without. Here's what we know about that. Our, our prayers are going to be hindered any time that we are not walking like we should with the Lord. Any time we're in disobedience to God. We're, we're, we're putting a separation between us and him. Okay, and that's what he's talking about here. He says, look, this is the way God is calling us to live with each other. We're to be following after the goodness of God and extending that grace to the people around us. And this is what you've got to do. If you're not doing that, you're going to find all kinds of things fall into pieces in the relationships around you. Guys, these are the people that, that we want to be. We want to be people like this woman that he's describing here, the wives. We want to be these people that are, are in a relationship with God that becomes so transformative that out of that, the people around us come to the Lord. I've, I've told you this uh, multiple times, but I'm just going to close with it here today. 
um, as a church, I, I learned this from a, um, a group called the Leadership Institute. Um, and uh, there's this image, this description that you probably thought of when, through this message if you've heard it before, but it's the whole image that we've talked about many times at the church, pitcher, cup, saucer, plate. And if you remember that image, this is, this is a, it's a good way to view our spiritual lives. And I think that it is also illustrates this passage of scripture very well. The, the, the image goes like this. God is a pitcher, a great pitcher full of, of liquid, all right? And he is the source of where we get a, a cool glass of something to drink, which sounds good right about now. He is the pitcher. We, our own lives, are the cup. And as God works in our lives, he who does not run out fills our cup with his goodness and with his spirit. He pours into us the pitcher pouring into the cup. But as he pours, he continues to pour until we've come to a spot where we've filled to the brim in our cup so full of God that it now begins to spill over the side of the cup. But God doesn't stop pouring. He continues. His grace is endless. He continues to pour that grace into our lives. It continues to flow over. And what it does is if you picture this pitcher, cup, saucer, plate, the pitcher is here pouring into the cup, but the cup is sitting on a saucer. And that saucer is then sitting on a plate. And if you continue to pour into that cup and that cup comes to overflowing, it begins to pour out onto the saucer. Well, the saucer represents those close relationships. Our spouses, our kids, our closest coworkers, our best friends, the close relationships that we have. As God pours his spirit into us, it overflows now out of our lives into their lives. And not only does it fill their lives to the edge of that saucer, now it begins to pour out even onto the plate. And the plate is all the other events of our lives, the things that we're part of, the things that we do, the broader scope, the bigger concentric circle. And as God pours himself into us and continues to allow us to overflow, it flows out into all those relationships and everything we do. That's the image here. That's how those unbelieving people that we're closest to are going to come to the Lord. Most of the time, people that come to the Lord do it because they've seen genuine lives transformed. Occasionally, it'll be an intellectual argument. They hear an argument for the existence of God and they're like, okay, yeah, that's it. It's got to be the way it is. I'm coming to the Lord. Most of the time, it's, well, it's, it's more felt. It's experienced by, wow, I want what that person has in their life. And because of that, I want to, to come. That's why community is so important. That's why being around each other is so important. And that's why allowing the Lord to fill us completely to overflowing is so important. That's abundant life. Remember Jesus uh, st standing on the steps of the temple at the end of a festival um, th th where they pour out this water and, and there, it's this whole uh, event that takes place. But Jesus says, I am the living water. And whoever thirsts can come to me and they can have this life, this living water that is gonna overflow them. Their life's gonna be abundant and full. Everybody wants abundant, full life. Everybody wants life that's overflowing. We're those people that have access to it. But so often what happens is we don't let our cup get full. We keep pouring out, splashing out a little bit. The Bible also says we're like cracked cups. We're, we're earthenware vessels that leak. 
So what we need is we constantly need a refueling and a refilling of the Lord in our lives so that we continue to overflow. Otherwise, what happens is we just get kind of shallow and stagnant and we're barely trying to hang on by what we have in our own cup. That's what we're called to. And that's what I pray for our our marriages here and for the marriages of the community around us. Well, with those thoughts, let's close here today in a, a word of prayer and ask God to teach us these things and put them deep into our hearts. Lord, thank you for this passage of scripture. And God, I do think of the marriages represented here in this church today, um, that there are many, I know many uh, marriages in, in our church who, in their case, one of the, the spouses is a non-believer. And Lord, I pray that, that no one would be ashamed of that or embarrassed by that, but instead, Lord, that they would have that heart that you have for their spouse. And Lord, that you would give them the endurance and the patience necessary to constantly reveal the goodness and the graciousness of you to them. I pray, God, that we would be people that are abundant life people, people that are overflowing to those around us. God, draw us closer to you. We don't want to be those those half-filled Christians that are just stuck in between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. Instead, let us be people that are truly overflowing and abundant. And Lord, today, I just ask that you would extend a grace um, especially into those, those families um, that, that struggle in this way. Lord, I pray that you would bring spouses to the Lord through their spouses or whatever means necessary, Lord. We just want them to come to you and be won by you. And we pray that, um, that you would do a powerful thing in our families, our extended families, our closest relationships, and that as a church, we would regularly see your hand at work doing some powerful things and changing people's lives. And today, Lord, I also do want to continue the blessing of our, the mothers represented here. I pray, God, that today would be a day that they would sense your presence and your peace and your goodness. I pray that uh, you would heal relationships where relationships are broken, that you would expand um, hearts of love in our families and and. And Lord, that you would continue to just watch over your church and that you would bless us. So we thank you, Lord, for this day. I pray that you would uh, watch over us throughout this week ahead. That you would give us opportunities to show your goodness and your grace to others. And that you would be near to us and transform our lives. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.